Please take your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 15, if you would, please. Judges chapter 15. As you turn there, let me just ask the Lord to seal what we have just sung, to make it so. Lord, this is quite a thing to call on the living God to slay the self in me and to do so by thy consuming breath, by the Spirit. Show us your heart, show us your wounds, Christ, your shame, so that self would be put to death in us. No man has seen your holiness and been able to stand unchanged. So let us see something of the holiness of our Savior today as we open the book. And as we do that, would you please forever slay self? We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Judges chapter 15. Have you uh, ever been north of Toronto to the little city called Orangeville? Everybody knows where Orangeville is. You've at least heard of Orangeville. Have you ever wondered why it was called Orangeville? I mean, most places, there's a reason behind the name. And I got wondering about that, like maybe there's an orange hue to the soil. No, that's not it. Maybe uh, years and years ago, there was a, a donkey cart pulling uh, crates of oranges that spilled, and that's also not it. Maybe it was a group of Irish orangemen who founded the town. That might have been it, but it wasn't it. The name Orangeville actually comes from its most prominent first citizen, a man, an American, by the way, who settled in the area. His name was Orange Lawrence. His first name was Orange. Don't ask me. Uh, Mr. Orange Lawrence moved from America to Canada. Maybe that's why. I was like, well, the name like Orange, go to Canada. Uh, he, he went up in that area, set up a mill along the river there, corner store, post office, all the, all the stuff you needed for a town. He came with some wealth, and he was this bustling, energetic, pioneering kind of guy who got sort of the town all laid out. And then strangely enough, one day went into his own backyard, grabbed the clothesline, and hung himself. Sad, but true. Kind of a strange event and a strange guy to name a town after. But the world lacks heroes, doesn't it? And uh, Southern Ontario maybe lacks them even more. I don't know. But that takes us to another flawed man and a place named after one of his exploits. So we're in Judges chapter 15, and our goal as we make our way through the rest of this chapter is to understand the flawed Savior and see if he cannot help us understand the greater Savior, a better one by far. So we'll begin in verse 9 of chapter 15. The Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. Lehi is one of these towns that's named after something, not a man, but an event. And at the time the author is writing about Samson's life, that event has already occurred. The place has already gotten its name. And it got its name, uh, the name means, Lehi means jawbone. Orangeville, jawbone, I'm not sure which is better. Uh, but we're, we're not entirely sure where Lehi was. We know what it meant. 
It was somewhere on the border between Philistia and Israel. And it's exactly where the Philistine army set up battle lines against Israel one day. It's probably sort of a wilderness area. And once those battle lines are drawn up, you get the normal last-minute diplomatic efforts to try and, you know, avoid war. So verse 10, the men of Judah said, why have you, why have you Philistines come up against us? And they said, we have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. So here's the setting of this event. And this event is actually the last episode of Samson's failed marriage story. So we looked at that, most of it, last Sunday, but there's so much going on in this very last part that we needed to deal with it all on its own. So remember what happened last week. Samson saw a Philistine woman that he wanted to marry, and before he could consummate the marriage, he did his whole riddle thing with the lion and the honey, which resulted in him losing a bet, and that resulted in 30 Philistines losing their lives and their clothes, and then he lost his fiance to his Philistine best man, so he set loose fire foxes to burn down all the food stores of the Philistines. So the Philistines, in an act of revenge, burned his wife to the ground, killed her, and then Samson killed a whole bunch more Philistines to pay them back for murdering his estranged fiance. That's where we left off the story, chapter 15, verse 7. Samson said to them, if this is what you do, kill my fiance." I swear I'll be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow and went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Now that provides an interesting lull in the story. Samson tells the Philistines, hey, I'm going to kill a whole bunch more of you, and after that I'll be done. So here's how it goes. Uh, they plow with his heifer, he kills 30 guys for their clothes. So they give his fiance to another man, and he lets loose the 300 fire foxes. So they kill his fiance, he strikes them with a great blow. Do you see the pattern? Revenge is a starving lion, it is never satisfied. In the cycle of revenge, each party has to not only pay back from the previous offense, but pay a little bit more. Each side keeps one-upping the other. When you act out of revenge, it is always payback plus a little bit. And so the revenge cycle never stops. You break my toy, I'll break two of yours. Taking revenge only ever escalates the problem, whether it's your marriage, your workplace, your neighborhood. It never solves the problem. And I kind of think that Christians might be the only people on earth who can stop the cycle of revenge because they understand that ultimate justice, therefore ultimate vengeance for every sin belongs to God, not to them. Every wrong and sinful act will be punished. It will, for the Christian, it will be punished on the person of Jesus Christ on his cross. And if you're not a Christian, you will be punished for every sin, unrighteous act, 
act of revenge in the endless eternity of hell. That is why the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in Rome and then by extension to all of us, and he says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never. But leave it or leave room to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Friend, if you're visiting with us today and not a Christian, I want you to be very sure you catch that. The Bible holds out this remarkable promise of eternal life for all who repent from their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ. And the Bible equally holds out a remarkable promise of eternal punishment for all who do not repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ. So if you find that your life is kind of spinning out of control in the cycle of revenge, that might be because you're not a Christian. And all your sinful acts of revenge are being counted up and remembered by God. And in the great day, he will exact final punishment for those sins forever in a hell that never, ever ends. That is precisely what Jesus came to rescue people from. Not just to rescue us from our acts of vengeance, but to rescue us from all the guilt associated with those acts of vengeance. But here we are in Judges 15. These Philistines are not Christians. Samson himself is still trying to figure out what it means to be a judge, a deliverer, a savior of Israel. And so the cycle of revenge continues. You strike us with a great blow, Samson, and we're sending our army to capture you. And that takes us now to the last episode and the sad tale. And this episode unfolds in four parts, four distinct scenes. And if you're already a Christian, I'm betting these scenes will sound very familiar to you. Scene one, the Savior, Savior is a judge, a deliverer. The Savior is betrayed and rejected by his own people. Sound familiar? Verse 9 again, the Philistines came up and camped in Judah, made a raid on Lehi. The men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we've come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Now, it's really important to note that word bind. It features prominently in the rest of the Samson story. If you know where this story goes, you know there's something about binding. And, and these Philistines are so driven by revenge that it's not good enough to merely kill Samson. They want to humiliate Samson. And so this judge, this savior of Israel must be bound. Okay, well, how are you going to do it? The men of Judah get the message. They send their envoy. They hear, oh, yeah, we are here for Samson. And they're like, we don't want war. So they get 3,000 of their crack troops and send them to find Samson. Verse 11, 3,000 men of Judah. These are not Philistines. They're Israelites went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam. What's that? It's where Samson was living, in the cleft of a rock. And said to Samson, 
Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. So let's deal with Samson's answer to his countrymen first. As they did to me, so I've done to them. That is really just a child breaking his baby brother's toys, isn't it? (laughs) You broke my Lego? I'm going to tear the arms and limbs off your stuffed toy and flush your soothie down the toilet. (laughs) Revenge. It is the cycle of revenge. They said, we've come up, the Philistines, we've come up to bind him, to do to him as he did to us. Samson says, as they did to me, so I've done to them. Somebody should have taken them all, put them in the corner for a couple minutes and said, two wrongs don't make a right. (laughs) But remember chapter 14, verse 4, where God told us that he was in all of this so that he might protect Israel from going completely Philistine. God is using the sinful acts of the Philistines, the fellow Israelites, and Samson for his purposes. But what's most important for us to see is what Samson's fellow Israelites say to him when the 3,000 of them cautiously approach the rock of Etom, (laughs) and then which tribe those 3,000 soldiers are from. Their question is pathetic, right? Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? That is a statement of spineless resignation. Don't you know we're a mere vassal state of those uncircumcised tyrants? Don't poke the bear. But the fact that that statement comes from the lips of the men of this tribe of Israel, these men of Judah, is meant to shock you. Do you recall, maybe you don't, the very first words of the book of Judges? Turn back to Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Yahweh said, Judah. There's 12 tribes in Israel. He picks Judah. Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand and Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And likewise, I'll go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and Yahweh gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Now that's the Judah we remember. It's the Judah who's always getting called out first to war. It's it's Judah who's been set apart by Jacob in the blessing of his sons. It's Judah from whom deliverance is supposed to come. But this generation of Judah's men form a militia to go and bind the Savior that God has provided for them. They They were not the last men of Judah to bind a Savior. But how sad and pathetic things are in Israel. The one tribe who ought to have rushed to fight alongside Samson against the Philistines, they have shown up with their clubs and swords to betray him to the enemy. They said to him, these are the men of Judah, verse 12, we've come down to bind you, Samson, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And I wonder what went through Samson's mind. I don't think he was scared. 
He just wiped out a whole whack of Philistines. We don't even know how many. He knows what he can do. He could certainly take out these 3,000 fellow Israelites. That wouldn't be much of a problem. But he chooses a different course of action. Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, Oh, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. (laughs) Like it's better. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Kill you, Samson. No, 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 of course not. (laughs) We're your fellow Israelites. We'll just tie you up and give you to the people who will kill you. (laughs) It'll be fine. You can trust us. Man, what has happened to the people in Israel who were longing for deliverance from their oppressors? I have to imagine that there were at least a few people cheering on Friday night dinner over Samson's exploits in Timnah and what he did there. Oh, did you hear about the 300 foxes? Where are those people gone? Like another savior, they all left him and fled, and all looks lost. But then comes scene number two, scene two, the savior's quote-unquote certain death, results in his undeniable victory. Verse 14, came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. They were certainly not shouting, hallelujah, praise Jehovah. No. They were shouting praise to Dagon, the king of groceries and grains, the fake god that a whole lot of people in Israel were starting to worship. So the real God of Israel decided to do something about that. They come shouting, then the Spirit of the Lord, Yahweh, the Spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. Now there are two miracles associated with this one event. The first miracle is this. The thing that happened to the ropes that would have been binding his arms, they're new ropes, meaning they're strong uh, with enough elasticity that you couldn't just snap them like a brittle zip tie that's been outside for too long. These ropes are like flax that has caught fire. They have just disintegrated like like a dried flower arrangement that gets too close to a candle. I mean, it's gone. And then the bonds or the shackles, it says the bonds melted off his hands. These would be like metal shackles, and they just melted off his hands like the manna would melt away as the sun rose in the wilderness. So these metal bonds simply dissolved off of his hands. So that which bound the strong man dissolved and disintegrated. That's miracle one. Second miracle the fresh ropes were replaced with a fresh donkey jawbone. Hee-haw, here we go. The fact that the jawbone was fresh means it likely had all the teeth still in it because as, as it dries out, the teeth fall out. Probably had a bit of flexibility. In other words, it is at maximum effectiveness as a weapon. 
The jawbone could stab, it could tear, it could rip, and it doesn't disintegrate as you bash it over the head of a Philistine. So if you took the number seven, is that a seven or is that backwards? It's backwards? This is right? Okay, thanks. Thanks, thanks to the people on the right. If you took the number seven and you turn it sideways, you start to get the picture of a donkey jawbone, right? There's this part that, you know, hee-haw. Uh, why do I do this? And, and then you got this long part here that would have the teeth kind of like big grinder molar things. And then there's a gap. And then you got those big donkey buck teeth at the end. You know how dumb donkeys look when they smile? So they got the big buck teeth at the end. And presumably, Samson would grab hold of that thing in the space between the teeth, between the buck teeth and the other teeth. And so you've got, you know, you can bash with this, you can slash with that, and you can just do a lot of damage with a donkey jawbone. And if the hand swinging that donkey jawbone is empowered by the omnipotent Holy Spirit, you can imagine the kind of damage it could do. Somebody told me a joke this week. Who's the dumbest man in the Bible? The 1,000th guy to try and capture Samson. There's 999 dead bodies there, and you're going to like, you're, I got him. <laughs> the man is doing damage with a jawbone. And apparently, God, dude, 1,001 was like, okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, Samson is relentless here. This is a slaughter. There are, say, 300 souls in this gym. Imagine they're all adults. Now triple that number and add in a few more and make them all strong male soldiers. You want to go up against 1,000 men? You want to go up against 300? I don't want to go up against one. <laughs> so 1,000 well-armed men try to capture Solomon, and the freshly released arm of Samson kills them all with a jawbone. Samson, foxes, lions, donkeys, all intersecting with the Samson story, almost as if to say, God can use whatever's available to accomplish his will. He doesn't need an army. He doesn't even need a man with a sword. All that's required is a man who's been armed with the spirit of the Lord. So Samson fought, and then Samson sang. I found my thrill, do 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 do, on Jawbony Hill, do 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 do. That was not true. He sang something else. Scene three, the Savior delights in his victory. Verse 16, Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. Done with that. And the place was called Ramoth-Lehi, Jawbone Hill. This victory song is stunning. It's a play on words. Do you remember what homonyms are? Words that are spelled the same, uh, sound exactly the same, but mean something totally different, like bat. It's a flying mouse. It's not really, it's, 
<laughs> they look like that to me. Um, you know, thing that flies or something you hit a baseball with, a bat. Uh, trunk, you, you pack your clothes in a trunk or it's the nose of an elephant. Seal, sea mammal or the little sticker you put on your envelope. Same word can mean two totally different things, which is why English is an incredibly difficult language to learn. Did you seal the trunk with the bat in it? Uh, Samson uses a Hebrew homonym in his song, and in that language, this one word can mean either donkey or heap. There's a translation, English translation of the Bible, Moffat's, where he, he tries to get this idea across. He says, with the jawbone of an ass, I've piled them in a mass. He's trying to get the sort of the rhyming bit of it. Th this is... Riddle man Samson, you know, he is, he is in his prime here. This is a victory shout. It, it's a mocking of the enemy. It's a bold exaltation of God. It is a declaration of victory. He is standing there surrounded by a thousand corpses when he says this. And yet, the victor needs help. And that takes us to scene four. The Savior is resuscitated and rescued from death. Verse 18. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Now, you may not see it yet, but you have probably just reached the most important moment in Samson's life. Can you guess why? Maybe I'll pause there. There's times we read biblical speech and it can sound very offensive to us. Like when Jesus responds to a certain woman and he says to her, woman, what have I to do with such as that? Oh, why would he call her woman? <laughs> it doesn't sound right to our Western ears. We might say man or something, but not woman. And there are ways you can, you can read your Bible that way. You sort of import your modern niceties into the text. So you could, you could read here, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? But you must pay careful attention to who Samson is speaking to. Verse 18, he was very thirsty and he called upon Yahweh. That's a first. It's the first time Samson's done this. And it's vital to see. So far, the spirit of Yahweh has seized Samson on different occasions, but there's been no indication of Samson praying or communicating to Yahweh in any way. Yahweh blessed him as a boy, chapter 13, verse 24. Yahweh stirred him as a young man, chapter 13, verse 25. And the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him in these three times as a man. But now something has changed in Samson. Now as he calls out to Yahweh, he shows us what he understands of Yahweh and himself. He understands 
Who brought about this great deliverance? You have granted this great salvation, Yahweh. He understands what his relationship is to that person. I am your servant. And he understands why these deliverances are taking place. It's so the Philistines see that there's a real God in Israel. Shall I fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? This is very, very significant. The strong man has gone from raving, raging revenge to now becoming one of Israel's true deliverers. And Yahweh is honored by his prayer request. I take Samson's words here as truth. He is literally going to die of thirst if he doesn't get a drink of water pronto. The man has just killed 1,000 others in the most physically violent way. He's exhausted, dehydrated. It's an arid climate. There is no water for miles around. Ponder that. The Savior got thirsty. And so he calls out to Yahweh. The very thing we have noted Israel had stopped doing as a nation. There's a cycle in Judges. Enemy oppression, they call out, God rescues them. Enemy oppression, they call out, God rescues them. Enemy oppression, you know the rest. And then you get to the time of Samson, enemy oppression. Crickets. Nobody's calling out. Don't you know we're just a suburb of Philistia now? Don't poke the bear. But finally, calling out is the thing Samson begins to do. He calls out to God. Verse 19, after he does, God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakori. It is at Lehi to this day. En-Hakori, the spring of the one who calls out. Not some short-lived, you know, 24-hour bubbling up little fountain, but a natural spring located right there on Jawbone Hill even in the day in which our author is writing down this account. Kids, if you had lived in that day, your dad could take you to Jawbone Hill. And he might be telling you about how Samson got a jawbone, and he's whacked the bad guys. And you're kind of thinking to yourself, eh, maybe. Really, dad, a thousand guys? And then he takes you over to a little spring of water. He says, why don't you get a drink? And you bend down and you get a drink. And as you're drinking, he says to you, oh, do you know what this spring is called? It's called the spring of one who calls out. After Samson killed all those men, he called out to God. And God satisfied his thirst. Son. Have you called out to God? Friend, have you called out to God? The provision for this first Savior, Samson, reminds us of another Savior who said this, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Are you feeling 
dehydrated from all your sins, all your attempts at revenge? Jesus told another woman, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Are you thirsty for that? Are you thirsty for eternal life? Take the water of life that comes without price. It's free even though another bought it for you by giving up his own life. Now, from this day onward, something changes in Samson. It appears to be bracketed in the text uh, with the last verse of chapter 15 and the last verse of chapter 16. After Jawbone Hill, chapter 15, verse 20, he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. And then you get all 16 where there's some more failure and demise and recovery. And in verse 31 of chapter 16, he had judged Israel 20 years. It seems to me that it's on Jawbone Hill where the judge finally finds his feet and his calling. And for 20 years, he judges Israel. And I have lots of questions. How did he keep the Philistines at bay for 20 years? Don't know. What were his exploits? Were there any? Don't know. Did he function like a nuclear arsenal functions today? He was just like a scary deterrent. Don't go there. There's a big, strong dude that'll kill you with a donkey jawbone. Uh, we don't know. But... Did you hear that echo? Dim, faint. It only lasts for a second. A couple more seconds in this gym. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> and when we read the story of Samson, we're reading the echoes of what is yet to come. Echoes of a greater savior and of a far greater deliverance. In the greater Samson, the last and final Savior, Jesus Christ, we also see, scene one, a Savior who's betrayed and rejected by his own people. Samson was betrayed by the men of Judah. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own disciples. Matthew 26, 47, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Samson was bound and delivered to the Philistines. Jesus was bound and delivered to the Romans. And those who delivered him said, we have no king but Caesar. Samson could have killed the 3,000 betrayers of Judah. And Jesus could have called upon an entire legion of angels to defend him. But both had other purposes in mind. For Jesus, it was to pay for the penalty of our sins. Seeing two of his life, our Savior's certain death resulted in his undeniable victory. There looked like no hope for Samson when he was led to the Philistines by a troop of 3,000 soldiers from Judah. And it looked like there was no hope for Jesus as they nailed him to that Roman cross when they came to the place that is called the skull. There they crucified him. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. And having said this, he breathed his last. 
to the naked eye. Samson looked as good as dead, tied up and surrounded by the Philistine army. To the naked eye, Jesus was dead on that Roman army's cross. And yet, when what Satan thought would be the end of Jesus actually effected the undeniable victory of Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. And this great victory included a great victory shout. Samson was betrayed at Lehi, Jawbone Hill. Jesus was crucified on Golgotha, the place of the skull. Both were mounds of victory. Samson took the instrument of his victory, a donkey jawbone, and threw it on the ground. Jesus endured the instrument of his victory, the cross, and despised its shame. Samson surveyed the results of his victory and sang a song. Jesus pondered the results of his imminent victory and shouted, it is finished. And then our Savior Jesus was not resuscitated, but he was resurrected from the dead. Samson grew thirsty to the point of death after winning his battle. Jesus actually died in order to win his battle. God split open the rock to provide Samson water to save his life. God raised his son Jesus from the dead so that he might become the water of life. Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to him. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If men could not decipher that Samson was their God-appointed Savior in in. 1070 BC, I have some pity for that because Samson was a complicated and a sinful man. But if men cannot decipher that the resurrected Jesus is the only Savior in 2023, I have little pity because his life was one of simplicity and sinlessness. And a day is coming when between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, you will see a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And the heavenly host singing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And from every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The greater Samson has come. His deliverance has been accomplished. Will you turn to him? Will you believe on him? Will you trust in him for your entire life? Or are you going to walk out of here thinking, and that preacher, doesn't that preacher know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Oh, friend, come out from among them. Look to the Savior who did not look like a Savior and enter into the joy of his salvation. Orangeville might be a nice place to live in this life. The new heavens and the new earth are a perfect place to live in the next. And only those who love the Lord in this life will be with him in the next. So come all the way to Jesus, the perfect Savior, the final Savior, and live. Let's pray together.
God, please make your way in our hearts. Especially those of us who might be very content to live like Philistines, to worship gods of our own creation. Grant that your Holy Spirit would not bring judgment, but would bring life. So, Holy Spirit, we come, we pray, come now, do your work, teach, guide, and lead, we ask in your name. Amen. Listen to the word of God. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, Keep yourselves from idols. This reading was from 1 John chapter 5. 